This is Archive Atlanta, episode 171, Death of Thomas Delbridge. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lamos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. So this week's mini episode is kind of a little longer, but um, there's a lot to talk about. It is about the death of Thomas Delbridge. In September of 1896, Thomas rode a rowboat out into the lake at Lakewood and disappeared. Was it an accident? Was it a suicide? And this was one wild historic true crime story from the Victorian era Atlanta. Just a little disclaimer, I am going to be talking about death uh, and suicide and maybe some uncomfortable topics, so keep that in mind if you want to skip this episode, you should do that now. Let's begin with the Delbridge family. If this sounds at all familiar, there is a Delbridge Street in Vine City, and I am 98% sure it's named for Dr. George Washington Delbridge. This is the name on his find a grave, um, but later his obituary states that his name was Charles Washington Delbridge. Either way, he was married to Emily, and together they had four children, Thomas John, Charles Lomax, Robert Cowart, and Harriet Estelle. Dr. Delbridge was born around 1825 in Virginia, and he had moved to Alabama before marrying Emily, who was from Rome, Georgia. She passed away only 12 years after they were married, and so then the family moved to Atlanta, where the doctor opened a pharmacy at the corner of Broad and Marietta Streets. He was also the dean, professor, and later on the board of directors at the Georgia Eclectic Medical College. Brothers Thomas and Charles followed their father's entrepreneurial spirits, and they went into several businesses together, mainly in printing. By 1883, they had formed Delbridge and Orr, which was a bookseller and bookbinding company that was on Whitehall Street. And in five years, they grew it from a one-room shop to having four floors and 11 presses. In 1888, they sold the interest in that company to a Mr. Lieberman, and then at that time, Charles was only 24 and Thomas was 22. They then went on to start the Delbridge Paper Company two years later. In 1890, Thomas Delbridge married Mary Motes, the daughter of Atlanta's first photographer, Christopher Washington Motes. C.W. Motes, as he's often called, uh, plays a really big part in the story, and I am planning a photography episode one day, so hopefully I can cover him way more detail uh, later. So Tom and Mary get married in Trinity Church, and they have two children, Thomas James and Emily Helena. By 1895, the brothers had opened the Delbridge Hotel, which was a five-story building that sat on the corner of Trinity and Forsyth. And this coincides with the 1895 Cotton States and International Exposition, which I covered in episode 111. There was a huge shortage of hotel rooms. There's really just shortages of, of all rooms people could rent. So it's very obvious that the Delbridges definitely tried to capitalize on this and whether they could afford to or not is a separate story. The hotel was described as being heavily mortgaged. The following year, the Delbridge Paper Company was placed in receivership. So at this point, Thomas is president, Charles is secretary, and they had 16 outstanding mortgages. Um, Charles is quoted in the paper as saying like, oh, we're, we're going to make it work, you know, we'll pay back all, our, all the people we owe. And then it's formally appointed a receiver, um, and they kind of take the business apart, even though it sort of gets to exist a little bit, which we'll get to. On September 8th, 1896, Thomas was just 30 years old and about to celebrate his sixth wedding anniversary. He entered into Delbridge paper, so it's still sort of in existence. He has a really short conversation with his brother, and then he goes home for dinner. After eating, he tells his wife that he would be out rather late, not to wait up, 
Thomas then boards the 6 p.m. streetcar out to Lakewood, arriving at 6.30. Now before I continue, let me give you a mini history of Lakewood Park. Future episode to come, I promise. But the city placed its first waterworks in Lakewood around 1874. And then when that shut down in 1893, it was developed into Lakewood Park. This was a resort area, had a huge lake where Atlantans would go to swim and boat and picnic, um, the same way that they would go out to like Ponce de Leon at the time. And so Delbridge arrives at Lakewood. He's been there many times goes to the ticket office, he rents a bathing suit, and he rents a rowboat. And the guard had seen him rowing, but around 7 p.m., the night watchman patrolling the shore noticed that the boat was empty, about 100 yards from the bathhouse. He went inside, he found Delbridge's clothes in the locker room, and so almost immediately there is a call put out. Um, the guards all start searching, CW Motes takes his carriage, he takes like the fastest carriage ride ever to Lakewood, um, family members start coming, and they're all looking for Thomas. So at this point, no one thinks they're going to find him alive. I, this was, I think, from the get-go, a search for a body. And the initial thoughts were that he had suffered a severe cramp from rowing, and then when he tried to swim, um, that he accidentally drowned. By September 10th, his body had still not been recovered. Search parties dragged the lake until 10 p.m. each night. Uh, three officers patrolled the shorelines into the wee hours of the morning. I think there were 15 divers that were helping. CW Moats offered a $50 reward, which he quickly increased to $100 for anybody that could recover the body. And this reward attracted a lot of people. And so soon you have 25 rowboats on the lake. You have 12 Atlanta blacksmiths that actually made 40 hooks to do this dragging. There were 30 sticks of dynamite blown up in the lake. Uh, this was an attempt to kind of unsettle the waters, so to speak, and see if the body would float. Unsurprisingly, there were also many spectators, about 2,000 of them lining the shore of the lake, and there were stories of the Lakewood streetcar being so packed that you had to ride the rails back into Atlanta. Now this is where things get interesting. The press discovers that Delbridge had taken out about $50,000 in life insurance about a month before his disappearance. Almost instantly, everyone thinks it's a suicide, but the insurance men don't think he's dead. They think this is all a ruse to get the life insurance payout and they want the lake drained because they're like, no, 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 we're not paying this unless we see a dead body. Friends beg for patience. Apparently most bodies rise on the third day. There's another well-known Atlantan, Robert Inman, who had drowned in a boating accident. I think it was like in New York or something. And his body was recovered on the third day. So this is their scientific evidence. But the guys are like, no, 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 we have to wait until the third day. To add to the mystery, the newspaper gets an anonymous telegram that says, quote, Delbridge is not in the lake at Lakewood. He rode across the pond where clothes were in waiting for him and other necessities. The idea of being drowned is all moonshine. Keep off the grass, end quote. Friends and family begin to speak out. So Forrest Adair lived near him, and he had also ridden the streetcar with him that day. And he's like, oh, you know, I talked to him on the streetcar. He seemed totally normal. He seemed totally cheerful. Um, the family swears it was not a suicide. I think his brother Charles at this point is in New York or something. And so he sends like a telegram where he's like, no, yeah, my brother would never commit suicide. Um, but details about the insurance policies like begin to emerge. And so there's an estimated about $53,000 over seven different companies and then three different fraternal orders. 
On September 11th, there is a plan to bring a cannon from the Atlanta artillery to shoot into the lake, but Moats allowed the operator of Lakewood to resume. So the orchestra starts playing, the dancing starts happening. Essentially, they had been shut down for three days at this point, and so they were losing a lot of revenue. That evening, two streetcar operators from the Atlanta Street Railway Company rent a rowboat, again, very much looking for this kind of reward money, and they start looking for the body. And as they paddle their way through about 8 p.m., they see a small object in the southwest corner of the lake. As they approached it, they saw it was the head of Thomas Delbridge bobbing in the water. More men and more boats are called, and so they end up placing like a loose rope around the neck of the body, and they drag it to shore when they're able to take it out. Thomas's body is taken to the coroner, and his family members confirm it is him. His services were held at Trinity Church with internment at Oakland Cemetery. So the coroner's jury was assembled like right away. They rule this an accidental drowning, um, pretty pretty clear cut. Stories of his total insurance amounts are floating all over the city. So some rumors like, oh, it's 90000 and, you know, oh, he took out a policy the day before he died. Um, C.W. Motes finally has to, like, make a statement to confirm. And so he's like, hey, it it's 62200 This is what he has. The family is expected that the companies are going to fulfill their contractual obligations. Nothing to see here. By October, not one policy had been paid. The first was paid in November, which was $5,000 from the National Union, and other companies respond that they have been putting a detective on the case, essentially, so for two months they've been investigating it, and all signs point to suicide. That theory was never brought up again, and then slowly companies just start to pay. So by December, there was four companies that had paid, and then like right before the new year, um, we're up to seven. That January of 1897, poor Mrs. Delbridge wrote these like published thank you letters in the newspaper to benevolent orders like, oh, Mrs. Thomas Delbridge, thanks you so much for paying your $2,000. I suspect this may have been some kind of requirement that they they told her when they cashed these policies out. I'm not sure. So in October of 1897, this is just over a year after um, Thomas's death, more drama comes to the Delbridge case. Now, Brother Charles makes the news. There's a reporter that exposes the story that he's fighting for a share of the insurance money. It's quickly retracted, um, but then the next day, Charles ends up making this public statement. And he is in New York at the time. But he, I think he calls the Constitution and he says, listen, I know more about this case than you think I do. He sends a telegram and he says he's ready to confess. He starts by stating that his brother did commit suicide, that he had wanted to for a while, ever since the failure of their first company. Um, His initial plans began in March of 1896. Charles said he begged him for hours not to take his own life. The night before the drowning, Tom had apparently tried to commit suicide with a pistol inside his own home. And Charles states that he left a note of some kind before going to Lakewood. So Mr. Motes denies all of this, like not nothing. Meanwhile, Mrs. Delbridge, so Motes' daughter, does not publicly speak to the press at all. This is all through her dad. By November, Charles had returned from New York City and he like elaborates more on his story. And he said that Mrs. Delbridge and her father, Mr. Motes, knew about the planned suicide and helped Thomas get his affairs in order. 
Tom left notes about how to distribute this money, but that those notes were kept hidden from the Delbridges. And Charles stated that he had an agreement with his brother that he was going to get a share and he was going to give some to his dad and that he was still due some of that money. The brothers had just started the Southern Paper Company that April and Moats had come to Charles, or this is Charles' side of the story, asking him to fix the books to reflect a larger salary for Tom so that the insurance companies would think he could pay the premiums. The insurance companies are silent in all of this, but the people of Atlanta were kind of torn. So, you know, Victorians love a little bit of gossip, but C.W. Motes was one of their oldest and most upstanding citizens. He had moved here immediately after the war. He was the photographer of Atlanta. He'd probably taken most of these people's family photos. And so there are very few prominent families who are going to turn against him. And Charles's friends start to falter a little bit. And so Charles assembles this very weird committee of his friends to decide his character and present the findings to Mr. Modes. Like that is some just Victorian oddness. Um, as you can imagine, the friends make favorable report and he like puts it in the newspaper and he lists all his friends' names. And then there's drama because some of these men are like, no, 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 I, I wasn't there. You know, I, I didn't sign this letter. Um, and it's just, it's, it's a little sad. It's Charles trying to defend his character and his name. And this is the last we have on the death of Thomas Delbridge. The family insurance drama, all of this just completely falls by the wayside of the newspapers. By 1898, Charles had moved to St. Louis, where he started publishing a math and science magazine. Dr. Delbridge, their father, died in 1899. Mr. Motes died in 1919 at the home of his daughter that he so strongly protected and defended during this time. Mrs. Mary Delbridge never remarried, and she died at the age of 59 in 1927. Her son, Thomas, his father's namesake, actually became a really famous fine arts painter and mainly I think he did landscapes and he exhibited all across the country and I think eventually lived in New York. So there you have it, the death of Thomas Delbridge. You can decide for yourself what the true story was, but I don't think we're ever going to know. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review wherever you listen. You can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.